Today's episode is brought to you by Tommy Pico's new collection, Feed. Listeners might remember Tommy from my conversation with him last year, where we talked about how he found his voice as a poet and about his relationship to his persona, Tebes. Publishers Weekly, in its starred review, calls his latest collection, Feed, riveting and says, Food, music, sex, and the void serve as means to reveal and dissect the speaker's interior life. Stepping outside of his alter ego persona, Tebes, to wonder about the possibility of a quote-unquote true self, Pico resists the obvious narrative and claims that Tebes, perhaps, is more real than himself. The speaker declares himself a recipe, made of the ingredients of his past and his family, defined by the intergenerational trauma of Native American genocide and displacement. Denez Smith adds, it's Pico's most ambitious work yet, a feast of his signature intellect, humor, and linguistic demolition. Feed is available now from Tin House Books. Next up is the audio of a panel from last summer's Tin House Writers Workshop. It's a panel on joy, on the craft of creating it on the page, on questions of joy in the process of writing, of what joy is, and why we so rarely speak about its dimensions in comparison to the much-discussed and dramatized suffering, sadness, and despair. Elizabeth DeMail, writer and assistant editor at Tin House Books, is the moderator of this panel. You can find her other interviews, her book reviews, and her writing at elizabethdemeo.com. And the panelists are Kelly Link, Garth Greenwell, and Justin Torres, Kelly and Justin have both been past guests on Between the Covers, and Garth's reading from his forthcoming book, Cleanness, is part of a recent Tin House Live episode. You can find all three of these episodes at tinhouse.com slash podcasts. Without further ado, here's the panel on writing towards joy. I'm so excited to be here with these three wonderful panelists. Thank you all. Uh, it is an honor and a joy. See how many times the word joy gets said during this panel. Play a game. Okay. I sort of have three general hopes of things we'll, we'll cover here, but we'll, you know, swerve and veer, and that's great too. I'm, I'd like to sort of get to what is joy? What do we mean when we say it? Uh, why does it matter to write towards it? Uh, to talk about it, and how do we do it? We're there on the page. What happens? And hopefully we'll have time for a couple questions. So I'd like to kind of start out with that what question. Um, I looked a little bit at the etymology of joy and the history in preparing for this panel. Um, something I think is interesting throughout history and even today is the way it's often tied to religion. Um, lots of religious texts mention joy specifically. Uh, and I'm going to start us out with just a quote. This is from a Quaker woman, uh, Elise Boulding, and she delivered this at a meeting house lecture in 1956. She said, For the real difference between happiness and joy is that one is grounded in this world, the other in eternity. Happiness cannot encompass suffering and evil. Joy can. Happiness depends on the present. Joy leaps into the future and triumphantly creates a new present out of it. 
So with that kind of framework um, in mind, or the idea that we're specifically trying to get at what joy is, as distinct from happiness or something else, uh, I want to start off with a question for you, Kelly. Um, I was reading an essay that you wrote, uh, adapted from your introduction to uh, an anniversary edition of Angela Carter's The Bloody Chamber. And this is something you said in that essay. Uh, Carter's versions of these fairy tales, the way she approached them, with joy, with intelligence, with irreverence, with love, with fearlessness, made me look again at the ghost stories and children's books that I read for pleasure. It made me see how necessary that joy in reading was to how I wanted to proceed as a writer. And I'm curious for you, um, when you say something like that as uh, a writer and as a reader, when you're calling a text joyful or saying your reading experience was joyful, um, what does that mean to you? Is it a feeling? Is it a quality in the work? Um, What is that like? So joy as a feeling as a reader versus joy as a writer. Um, I mean, even, I think if you're a writer, then even reading sometimes becomes dutiful or informational, um, as opposed to joy, which um, I think of is more of an unexpected welling up of something, um, you know, moving into a, a space uh, which you were not expecting to find. A lot of people who write in genres like science fiction and fantasy talk about a sense of wonder, which is, I think, next door to the sense of joy, which... And joy, as a reader, can be um, an unexpected recognition of yourself on the page um, or something that you know to be true about your own experience. Um, it can be a complication that when you read it that you, you recognize something in it. Um, it can be also, I think, it can have that religious feel of sort of a an abundance um, or in a momentary a moment in which um, surprise overwhelms or redirects a routine pattern of thought or understanding okay that was an awesome answer and I think uh, sort of segues well into a question um, that I had for you Garth um, so there's an interview of yours that I read. Uh, in the New Yorker, and you're talking about your story, The Frog King. Um, it's a wonderful story. If you all don't know it, I recommend. And you're talking about some of your goals in writing that story. You say, uh, to a certain kind of temperament, my temperament, I guess, the assumption that happiness is less interesting than suffering, happy families are all alike, etc., and therefore a less worthy subject for art seems natural, self-evident. But I think that assumption is wrong. It's an aesthetic failing, but also a moral one, it seems to me now, to see happiness, even very ordinary happiness, as somehow less profound, variegated, interesting, less accommodating of insight than other kinds of experience. And then a little bit further on, you say uh, in the story, I wanted to challenge myself to take happiness seriously. The surprise for me was how painful it was to write it. Um, And I'm curious to hear from you and from everyone on this panel um, whether that's that sort of normative idea that, that happiness is less interesting or writing towards joy is less interesting, um, ha- have you found that in workshops or in however it is you sort of came to practice? Is that something you see students or yourself grappling with, you know, now or earlier on? And how do you push towards or against that idea? Yeah, well, those are questions I'm really asking myself 
I mean, my temperament is not just toward a sort of um, presumption of the profundity of suffering, but also toward extremity. And whether that's a kind of extremity of suffering or an extremity of sort of ecstasy, to imagine that the kind of significance art is made from happens at the extremes. That's an assumption I increasingly want to question. And I think part of the reason I want to question it is simply um, biographical. Uh, you know, we've been ta- I've talked about a little bit in my workshop that um, it's funny when one finds oneself in a life one would never have imagined for oneself. And, um, you know, for the last six years, I've been in a um, remarkably uh, domestic relationship. <laughs> and, you know, to sort of find oneself, and I, because I do feel like I am someone who has sought in certain realms of life, in some kinds of life, I feel like um, I'm very risk averse, but in other realms of life, I've sought out a kind of intensity that one finds in, in, in risky places. Um, I believe this thing, like I think basically I do have a kind of um, tragic view of life. I don't think one chooses that. I think that's temperament. And, um, but I, and I also believe that like, no matter, like one might with such a temperament sort of have little spikes of joy that then collapse immediately back to sort of, you know, so it's like, oh, I have a book, I'm a real writer, and then, no, I'm not. Um, <laughs> and sort of, you, you know, you live, you live where you live. It has been a very destabilizing realization that um, actually I think being in the relationship that I'm in, waking up next to someone every morning and having a very ordinary unspectacular alleviation of loneliness has like just nothing dramatic just kind of like slightly notched up my like sense of contentment (laughs) but that like slight notching up actually seems to me profound and seems to me a place that literature lives and so I want to challenge myself to sort of see that as profound, that very ordinary life. I mean, it is my central um, sort of belief about literature that literature is not art. Art is not about subject matter. Um, That art is not um, content, but art is a way of seeing, art is a way of experiencing, and that significance lives in how one engages with the world. And so it is a challenge to myself to try to find in sort of very ordinary circumstances um, something that feels to me worthy of art. Thank you. That was incredible. Um, And I think that quality really um, comes through in your work. Uh, And I I was sort of going to ask you a question along those lines, and I had this question for uh, you too, Justin. Um, Something that I have encountered in both um, your book, Garth, and and your book, Justin, in particular, um, What Belongs to You and We the Animals, 
in thinking about sort of ways to um, the, the how I was talking about, you're on the page, what do you do to get joy on there? Um, a strategy of yours or, or just an occurrence that I've seen is that your characters will find joy um, in moments where I as a reader don't expect them or where society doesn't expect them to find and I've been thinking about that as a, as a craft technique or a concept. So giving joy um, a place where it's not supposed to live or giving it something to push up against as a way that we might all be able to get at it. Um, Justin, there's an interview you did that I think speaks to that um, with Electric Lit. Um, Sarah Ortiz is talking about the chapter called Heritage. Uh, she says, uh, in this chapter, while the three brothers are dancing in the kitchen, the father shouts at them, you ain't white and you ain't Puerto Rican. Watch how a purebred dances. Watch how we dance in the ghetto. Um, and then she asks you, uh, she says, it's clear the kids don't fit in either category. Did this resonate with you? Um, and in your answer, you proceed to say, uh, which, and I should preface by saying, for me, that was one of the most joyful scenes in the book, which might feel surprising, um, but then you also sort of brought it up here. You said, I think I wrote that scene because there is a certain lose-lose attitude towards being mixed race. You ain't this, you ain't that. And I wanted to express that, but also that's a pretty joyous scene as well. I think that there is a bounty to being able to dip into this or that or the other category. Um, so it's a perfect example to me of what we're talking about, right? Finding joy in that kind of moment. Um, and I'm wondering if you could speak to that. Sure. <laughs> Hi, guys. Um, yeah, so I think that I think that that's I think that the way you phrased it is exactly right. I think that joy, especially on the page and in fiction, works really, really well when it's when it's kind of a way of outsmarting shame or escaping shame or just getting out of shame's clutch and grasp. Or uh, I mean, I, when I was thinking about this book, when I was constructing this book, I was thinking a lot about joy, and I was thinking of joy in terms of um, the erotic, the mystical, and the political, and that all three of them need to exist at once for joy, I think, to be really interesting on the page. And so in that scene, in that scene that you talk about, you know, there's dancing, there's their father, there, especially the narrator's like looking at his father and his body. It's a very, it, it is a very kind of erotically charged scene. It's a very embodied scene. And then there's this kind of mystical element as well, right, where, where yeah. they're trying to understand something. So, like this abstract concept about what it means, what it means, what, what heritage even means, and what their father has been through, and what his life has been like. And then it's also a very political scene. Um, and I think that that like for me, I love like writers I love who are great on joy. There's always th those three elements in there. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk about that joy as a political response. I was hoping we we would go there. Um, <laughs> So, and, we and, did. <laughs> and you, you segued right in. Um, so, I was going to sort of ask, um, you know, is there a fascination with joy, both publicly, like Marie Kondo, Spark Joy, and in um, the literary consciousness? But I, you know, I had seen um, Lainey Zumas, I saw her in conversation with Miriam Taves recently, and they talked a lot about joy, which I didn't expect in uh, Miriam's new book, Women Talking. Uh, Wendy Walters has a great essay on joy just out in the Iowa Review and about joy and privilege. Um, and then this week sort of affirmed that answer for me over and over. Joy keeps coming up in the panels that I've heard and the craft lectures. Um, Aro Kwan said the other day, as I'm revising, I'm working toward more and more joy and more and more delight. Uh, so I feel like I have 
the answer. I don't need to ask the question. I think it is a trend right now, especially in the literary world, not, not maybe to write towards it, because I think writers are, are always doing that, but, but to talk about it and to examine what it is. And I'd like to talk about why we think joy keeps bubbling up as a literary fascination. And, and one of my theories is that it's a political response to the moment we're living in. Um, Justin, I read uh, your writing on Mikhail Kuzmin's, Kuzmin's novel, um, Wings, and that, uh, as you describe it, is a really joyful novel, but coming into the world um, along with some of his other work at a moment when the Ru- Russian government was very repressive, very homophobic. And I think even if we look at other examples, um, Beethoven's Ode to Joy is another one, super joyful thing in a moment of... Um, real political pressure and tyranny after the Congress of Vienna. So throughout history, if you look at joyful work and and the public fascination and response to those works, it's in really fraught and oppressive political moments. Do you all see that now? Does that resonate? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that the Kuzmin thing is is great. I mean, that that book was written in 1906, and it is the gayest book ever, and it was a (laughs) big hit. And it was in the Silver Age, right before there's this kind of crackdown. And then, you know, a couple of years later, Kuzmin dies. But if he hadn't died, he would have been shot, like all of his friends were. Um, but I think that you're absolutely right that one of the things that Kuzmin is saying is that we need to anticipate with joy the new age. We need to anticipate the time which, in which queer people will be free. And I think that... Um, Alain Chisou, or I don't know how you say it, she's French, Alain Chisou. Uh, she, says, she says this, anticipation is imperative. She has this essay she writes called The Laugh of the Medusa, which I highly recommend everybody read. It's like crazy. And it's this 1976 feminist essay, and she's talking about what feminism needs to do is like be in the body, be like in women's bodies, like be erotic. And she, and she says anticipation is imperative. And I think that that's what Doug was saying earlier on this, on this panel. He was talking about joy and making art that's not a reaction against, but that is about art that is about anticipation, right? Um, I think, too, you know, joy is a, is a tricky thing, right? Because we're talking about it so expansively and, and politically as this big force, but it can also be so many writers, when they talk about joy, they talk about intimacy and how joy is very personal to them. Um, and that's something I see in all of your work. Um, Kelly, I, I was reading your... Uh, so she gave a fantastic speech recently at the One Story Debutante Ball. Uh, I think they published it on Lit Hub, if you all want to go read it. Um, But I pulled something from that that you said, which was, uh, she's giving advice to new writers, and you said, take risks, write about things that matter to you, even if you aren't sure that they matter to anyone else. Don't be ashamed of the things that you unabashedly love in narrative. Investigate them with a loving heart. That that is something I've, like, felt so long when reading your work, is just, like, a joy that comes through in in every single paragraph and sentence. Um, I feel like you can tell the writer is loving what's happening. And I wanted to talk about that as like a craft technique that we can use to kind of write towards joy. So I will do what I usually do when talking about writing versus joy, which is say, I hate writing. I hate almost every single part of it. Um, I read that quote too, and I didn't yeah. include, but I'm glad. <laughs> I, I sit down with bitterness. I... <laughs> I look at the blank page with bitterness. I may do some work but every time I come back, mostly I'm filled with bitterness that I have to come back to it. <laughs> and um, 
bitterness and despair. And I mean, I, I realize this is funny, but it's also true. Um, and, but, you know, for me, I have to move past that stage. Maybe some people can actually exist productively in that stage, but for me, it's paralyzing. And so the process of, of writing is a process of trying to thi- find things that will, will be, in fact, joyful. Um, so things that are possible to do with language are a source, source of joy. Um, layering um, the, the talk that Jim Shepard gave about uh, both and. The, the, I mean, one of the things about joy is joy is not... It is not always only a singular emotion. It is an emotion that can exist in conjunction with other emotions, which is something I'm super interested in. And so joy and anger can exist together. Joy and terror can exist together in in that sort of ecstatic way. Um, And so revision is, if I am able to find space in a story for something that I did not know that I would have space for, I have a certain amount of, I, I feel joy. Um, I have a lot of other techniques for sort of increasing the possibility that I will find joy. Community is, uh, especially at the size, is exhausting, but it is also a, a, a space in which there are multiple opportunities for joy, in part because I really am always extremely pleased to be in the company of people who want to talk about their experience of writing and reading. And the things that people say about writing and reading often provide me with a great deal of joy. Um, and not, they don't always, they don't have to map onto my experience. I can even think sometimes that the things that they are saying make no sense to me. But that is also joyful, that, um, that the range of writing and reading is so very large that, um, that it is sort of an overwhelming abundance of, of range and possibility and voice. Um, you know, the... the the other thing I will say about writing and, and community and joy is I don't take a particular amount of joy. I may take satisfaction or sort of pleasure in things that happen uh, in terms of career, but what I do find is it's very easy to take joy in other people's success. That again, joy is that extra thing. It is the, it's the overabundance. It's, it's the space that um, sort of takes you by surprise. You know, it's I think there is something mischievous about joy, which is true of Angela Carter. Um, And I think that there is something almost inappropriate or slapstick about it. Um, And that may sometimes be, there may be kind of a selfish aspect to that or a cruel aspect to it, but there is also the ecstatic aspect. Um, Thank you. I love the idea of sort of joy mixed with other feelings and the ways we might layer those in. Um, And Garth, in an interview of yours that I read in um, the Paris Review, you talk with Nicole Rudick about that. Um, There's a moment where she's talking about the character in your book, What Belongs to You, and she says, uh, shame and joy coexist surprisingly often for him. Um, And you said in the third section, when he talks about his first experiences of cruising, their experiences of joy, of great freedom, and their experiences of a real community, in some ways a supportive community, um, which is interesting in terms of what Kelly said about community too. Um, And then you continued, I don't want to simply present these as spaces of shame because they're not. Uh, But in this narrator's experience of them, they're not places that can be scrubbed of shame. 
I'm wondering if you could just talk to, you know, that balance, right? Joy, in this case, joy and shame, but what it means to sort of layer it in with something and how it functioned in that book for you. I, I do think any profound emotion contains its opposite. Like, that is one of the things we mean by profundity. I think I'm on record about not liking craft talks, um, <laughs> except for all the craft talks this week. Um, <clears throat> But my favorite craft talk is Keats's Ode to Melancholy, which I think is a really profound poem about what it means to put profound emotion on the page. And he has that wonderful line, joy whose hand is ever at his lips bidding adieu. Right? So this idea, yeah, I know, for real. Like, um, I mean, I don't think Keats was queer, but that's totally queer. Like, that's sort of <laughs> queer melancholy, queer joy, um, this idea of futurity. I think queer people have always had to imagine joy in the future. Sort of, We've always been cruising utopia. Um, but yeah, so this idea that, um, I, I mean, I guess another just one of my fundamental prejudices or beliefs is that any time two human beings have a face-to-face -face encounter, all of the emotional notes are present. And I am interested in what seem like foregone conclusions that are then interrupted. So um, one of, another craft talk I really love um, is Frank Bedart's um, poem, Borges and I, in which he says, we fill pre-existing forms and when we fill them, change them and are changed. I wrote a book about sex work and about a relationship between two people who are separated by all kinds of complicated privilege and relations of power, um, and relations that maybe do not line up in all of the ways that we sort of presuppose. But I feel like when you know that you're reading a book about a relationship between two people who met in a toilet underneath the National Palace of Culture and one of whom pays the other for sex. You can be pretty sure where the relationship is going, that there is a kind of script we expect it to follow. And I was aware that I was writing a book that in important ways followed that script and that I was not writing toward... Um, that like they were not going to magically be able to make all of these gulfs between them disappear. I knew that I did not want to write Pretty Woman. <laughs> I love Pretty Woman. And <laughs> Julia Roberts is a goddess, but it was not the novel I was going to write. And yet, even though, I mean, I hope, kind of as with Giovanni's Room, James Baldwin's great novel, on the first page of which we know everything. We know how the story ends. We know Giovanni is going to die. We know David is going to have destroyed his life and the life of several others. And yet, something that literature does that I love is that it can, well, I mean, to say that something is lyric, I think, is to say something about its relationship to time. And um, it might be that... So do you guys know the photographer Mybridge? Yeah. 
one of the first photographers who used sort of stop motion. So he has these amazing series of, you know, studies in animal locomotion. And um, one of the ones that I love, I love them all, but one of the ones that I love is Two Wrestlers. And it's just, I think it's six images, maybe seven images, where one wrestler is just throwing the other. Like just... And when you see the whole series, you know what's happening. There's no ambiguity. It's an entirely legible action. And it's entirely legible that one man is exerting power over another and that one body is being acted upon. But the image right in the middle, if you take it out of its series and you just look at it, it's this incredibly lyrical, graceful moment of one body folded over another, somehow hanging in space. They could be dancing. They could be, one man could be catching the other. They could be lovers. They're also very beautiful and naked. Um, That image, frozen, feels to me full of possibility, entirely illegible, entirely open to interpretation. So too, I knew that these two characters were trapped in structures they could not wish away, they can't fix, they can't overcome in any easy way. And yet what interested me was this kind of human surplus that I do believe exists even in such structures, where because it is a face-to-face encounter between two human beings, and because while we are um, trapped in structures, we are not exhausted by them, there was feeling, possibility, a sense of potential that overflowed those structures, didn't defeat them, didn't solve them, but overflowed. And where it did seem for a moment that anything was possible. And so that was what interested me. You know what's going to happen. You know the kind of story you're in. And yet there is all of this surprise and human drama and potential for tenderness and generosity and joy and something that I think I would call love that is nevertheless part of a very complicated exchange. Yeah. <laughs> <That's> beautiful. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, okay. Take a second. Um, I think, so I actually have just maybe one more question, then I'd love for y'all to have some questions, too. Uh, I'm sure there are many. Um, So there's an interview um, that sort of first gave me the idea for this topic that George Saunders did um, in 2013 with The New Yorker, and he was talking about the 10th of December. And he sort of spoke to a small fraction of the things you were speaking to, not as eloquently as you just did. Um, but it's about the idea... Take away his booker. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I didn't say it. <laughs> okay. Um, so he's talking, though, about sort of existing... Um, in life and then finding these moments of joy and translating the experience in life onto the page. And he's talking about how when he wrote that book, he was kind of happy in life. And he was like, oh, this is new. What do I do? Um, And he said, the idea is that maybe that even within the domain of that big machine, there is joy and justice and contentment. 
sometimes you can find yourself between the wheels intact. Um, and you've all been individually sort of speaking to this idea throughout the panel, but I'm curious about um, that relationship between joy in life and joy on the page. You know, is it um, I feel joyful, I can, I can write something joyful, do you have to be in a joyful place in your life in order to do that? Or do you think um, it's not, not a one-to-one -one correlation in the sense that you want to write, represent joy differently in your work than the way that you've experienced it? or the way that you believe it to be. I have to say I was excited about this panel because it did seem to me like some counterintuitive programming. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's like, you're asking me about joy in life? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can talk about joy in the page. I, I, yeah, I have a hard time talking about joy in life. I think it's, yeah. um, but everybody does, right? I mean, like... Blake, like the romanticists talk about joy all the time, right? Like there's just, there's so much joy in poetry. There's so much encountering with joy on the page in poetry. There's a great tradition of it. There's like none in psychology. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> they, don't, they don't talk about it. They don't write about it. I mean, it's, it's fascinating and horrifying. Um, but I think that there's, there, there's something there as well, yeah. right? Like we have we have a difficult time thinking of joy as an affect that is a basis, right? Like, to move forward from. Um, that, like, joy, that, like, thinking that comes out of joy is, is thinking that is worthy and valuable, right? We think a lot out of trauma. We think a lot out of pain. We spend a lot of time um, circling that and studying that and considering its sources and and the ways in which it manifests itself and reproduces itself in our world. And I don't think enough time sitting and thinking about the way in which joy manifests itself and reproduces itself, and what are the conditions that allow it to flourish. Um, I know I haven't done enough thinking about that. Yeah. I think that there are... I, because this was the topic, I did spend some time thinking about... Uh, the the sort of places where I'm most likely to feel joy, um, especially as related to the writing life, um, and you know there are things that occur in revision that are joyful. I think one one is uh, redirection or a refusal or sort of a a a place where you, as a writer, think that the reader is likely to go where you are able to channel around that in some way, which you hope will be surprising, that there's, that feels joyful to me. But in a more physical sense, I do, I really like driving on backcountry roads, and I really like swimming pools. And um, writing is not joyful for, for me, but um, I, I do, when possible, try and do work in a place where I can do a little bit of driving and a little bit of swimming. and. I actually feel joy in those situations. I think because I'm moving towards something that I know I'm going to be doing, but I'm not there yet. So it's, it is anticipatory. I do, in both of those contexts, in a swimming pool underwater or driving on a road, find that I am able to have a clear space in my, my head where I can, I can have ideas that seem as if they will be pleasurable to explore um, in a way when I am sitting at my desk, I, I feel stuck in a place 
and in many of the things that I need are also stuck in place. Um, those are those. You know, the other thing, joy is. I feel that you know the thing about joy is it's not. It's not a. It's not a thing. I mean, it is useful, but it is. It's. It's not a thing that you can. It is a thing that is that, that exists in a space in which maybe there's not a lot of space for other things to be occurring, or conversely, it exists in a space in which lots of other things are occurring and it is not supposed to be there. Um, and, and both of those aspects are interesting to me. All right, this was incredible.